At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Amy Leventhal wrote the opera Our Sacred World as a love letter to Mother Earth. Climate change is personified as a main character in this story, along with Mother Earth. Later this hour, we'll hear from Amy Leventhal and director Lauren Morris about the innovative fantasy opera with dance premiering this Saturday. Plus, our series Speaking of Art today features abstract portrait artist Lauren Merceron. First... When pianist Will Ransom wanted to form a chamber music society in Atlanta, he approached David Schifrin for advice, with good reason, as in the chamber music firmament, clarinetist David Schifrin is among the brightest stars. He has performed with the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center since 1982, served as artistic director of that storied organization for a dozen years, and currently is the artistic director of Yale's Onepo Chamber Music Series, as well as the Yale in New York Concert Series. Mr. Schifrin also maintains an active career as a concert soloist and teaches at the Yale School of Music. He'll perform with the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta on Friday and Saturday. Ahead of those concerts, he joins me now via Zoom. David Schifrin, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Now, you were the principal clarinetist with the Cleveland Orchestra and the American Symphony Orchestra under Leopold Stokowski. You've performed clarinet concertos as soloist with many of the world's most prestigious orchestras, but chamber music holds pride of place in your career. For those not yet familiar with chamber music, how would you describe its special appeal? Chamber music is kind of a combination of so many of the 
genres that a classical musician will be involved in. Traditionally, some of the great instrumentalists over the years, for instance, the uh, clarinetist that Mozart wrote for, Anton Stadler, or the clarinetist that Brahms wrote for, Richard Neufeld, had really diverse careers. Stadler played in the Vienna Opera and uh, played symphonically. Mozart included clarinet parts in his opera orchestra because of his friend Stadler. Brahms wrote for Mühlfeld after Mühlfeld had switched from violin to clarinet, but played the clarinet in Bayreuth with Wagner, played principal clarinet in orchestras in Meiningen, Germany and elsewhere. They played concertos. Obviously, um, Stadler played the concerto of Mozart, which is a crown jewel in his concerto repertoire. And Brahms heard Mühlfeld playing Mozart's concerto and was inspired to write his chamber works, which brings me around to the personal nature of the extensive repertory for chamber ensembles, where composers wrote some of their most compelling personal masterpieces for musicians that they were very closely aligned with, were writing for musicians that they knew, as well as music for themselves to play. I think Brahms is one of the greatest examples because almost all of his piano chamber music, he was the pianist. He played with, with Mofeld, he played with, with Hausmann, the cellist, he played with Joseph Joachim, the violinist. And when you hear his, his sonatas and his trios and his quintets, you can just imagine him sitting there with his cigar uh, and, um, and playing these in, incredible works with musicians that he had known for years and years and were kind of extension of his own creative self. So being a chamber musician and being involved in works that were conceived in, in that kind of a way is very stimulating, as well as having the chance to take on all of the roles within one endeavor. By that, I mean, you're not a member of a, of a corps, of an infantry, but you are a protagonist. You're one of the leaders, and at times you are part of the, of the ensemble. You're accompanying, and you're a leader sometimes, and a soloist sometimes. You play inner voices. You play virtuosic passages. You play the, the bass line. And most chamber music is done without a conductor, so it's a collaborative effort. And it gives a chamber musician a chance to be in what is, is probably one of the most meaningful experiments in democracy, when all the members of a group have a voice in how a work is going to be interpreted and performed. So I found that over the years to be the most stimulating and rewarding aspect of my career. And you also have been responsible for the creation of new works for your instrument, commissioning pieces for clarinet. This is true. Mozart loved the clarinet, which is certainly the best endorsement any instrument could have.
The modern clarinet was relatively new toward the end of Mozart's all-too-brief lifetime, yet his few works for clarinet written at the very end of his life remain crown jewels in the repertoire. You will perform Mozart's clarinet quintet with members of the Emory Chamber Music Society here in Atlanta. What makes this piece extraordinary? It is difficult to um, name an aspect of a masterpiece that makes it perfect. So I think I have to go down a list. Mozart's quintet was first of all an innovation. There was no music that I'm aware of for a string quartet adding a clarinet prior to, to Mozart's composition of this work, but it, it became one of his most beloved works. It has colors that never existed before. It has structure that's perfect with four movements in sequence that complement each other so beautifully it creates a soundscape that never existed before Mozart wrote this work. The sound of a string quartet joined by a fifth member, which sometimes as a chameleon becomes like a fifth string player, much in the same way that Mozart wrote several quintets with an extra viola. The clarinet takes that role, but then with its capability of playing like a coloratura soprano, it sometimes jumps out of the texture. And even now to, to someone like me who has played this piece for half a century, the genius of the uh, interplay between the instruments is still startling sometimes. the humorous sections and the, the surprises when Mozart will add an extra measure to a phrase or make a cadence that's slightly unexpected from the traditional harmonies of the time. It's still surprising even after hearing the piece a thousand times. Mozart's clarinet quintet played a role in the storyline for the final episode of the television series, M.A.S.H. As a music lover, and as one especially fond of this piece, I was struck by its place in that part of popular culture, 
the final episode of MASH. Now, this was long before on-demand viewing, and you were a rising star at that time, rather busy. But I wondered if you were aware of that TV episode. Absolutely. I watched it live on, on a tube television in my apartment. Uh, I was in Los Angeles at the time. Of course, there, there are a lot of connections that MASH fans might not have tuned into at the moment. One was that uh, David Ogden Stiers, who played the recording. Yes, Winchester. Uh, Winchester, yeah, was a student at the Juilliard School. So he had a lot of interaction with the most uh, renowned musicians of that next generation. And that Alan Alda's wife, Arlene, is an accomplished clarinetist. And Alan Alda is a, is a big chamber music lover, too, and was very uh, close friends with members of the Guarneri Quartet. So I think the, the presence of chamber music in that, in that community is not such a surprise. No, and this piece in particular, I think, tied to the tragic moment of that storyline in particular, and thinking of it as one of Mozart's final works, although he had no idea it was going to be that, it makes them seem indelibly linked in my mind. Yeah. It was very amusing to me to hear that context and very moving as, as well. So did you have any contact with either the actor, well, I guess, David Ogden Steers? Do you say Steers? I, I'm not sure. And okay. I know I, I didn't know him personally. I didn't go to Juilliard, but about 75% of the musicians that I've worked with subsequently did. I went to Curtis Institute in Philadelphia, and we didn't have an acting department, but I used to hear from all my friends at Juilliard how how much fun it was to go to the cafeteria and see people like, like Winchester or, or any number of people that became quite well-known shortly thereafter, notably Robin Williams, who they said was always performing in the Juilliard cafeteria, in the hallways. <laughs> he, he was always on. Couldn't help himself. Exactly, yes. Well, I know Kevin Klein was there as well, and he went to Indiana, which was my alma mater, and I remember his choice of Indiana as an undergrad was because he couldn't decide whether he wanted to become a pianist or actor. And he thought, well, here was a university that had both. And, and then I think he was in that first acting class at Juilliard, that inaugural program. Yeah, and when I've seen him play the piano on screen, it's there's no need for a stand-in. He, he plays really well. So you are at this fantastic moment in your career. You've won many prizes. You're revered as a chamber of music artistic director as well as performer. You still teach. Why? All of these things are part of being a musician teaching, performing, studying, playing chamber music, performing as a soloist. But teaching 
combine so many of those things. And I enjoy the position that I have at Yale because it focuses on the instrument that I love so much, working with six incredibly talented, advanced graduate students. But my position also involves quite a bit of chamber music, working with groups that I coach and putting together programs. And um, it gives me a chance to go beyond just uh, the colors of my instrument, but and the limitations of the repertoire for clarinet, but to get involved in other music. When I coach works uh, with string players and piano or put together programs for our Yale and New York series involving other repertoire, it's very stimulating. Mm. Well, it really has been a thrill for me to talk with you and Many of us in Atlanta can't wait to hear you perform. Thanks so much for having me on. Virtuoso clarinetist David Schifrin performs with the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta this Friday and Saturday. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about Our Sacred World, a new opera that uses dance to highlight the issue of climate change. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. As the effects of climate change command our attention in real life, the crisis has also become a subject for creative self-expression. Our sacred world, an opera with dance, is a fantasy based on reality, written as a love letter to Mother Earth. Amy Leventhal created the libretto and composed the music for Our Sacred World, which will be performed on Saturday, January 21st, in the Cole Auditorium of the Fine Arts Building at Georgia State University Perimeter College. Amy Leventhal joins me now via Zoom with 
Stage director Lauren Morris, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Such an honor to be here, Lois. Thank you. Amy, why do you think opera is an effective medium for a story about climate change? Well, I think people love stories. I think it's innate in all of us. We like to sit around the campfire. And I believe that opera has it all. It has the story. It has amazing singers. In this case, the Full Radius Dance Company will be performing eight dances within the opera. And I think opera is a medium. uh, Music is so emotional. And it bypasses words in a way, even though there are words in opera, it goes right to the heart. And I think people can really feel a story as well as see it and experience it. Now, you are a violist by training, a very talented one who worked for many years performing professionally, also with the Atlanta Symphony for many of those years. It seems like quite a leap from string player to opera composer. Do you feel like you've entered another realm? No. I think I always, in the orchestra, was listening to people like a composer. I was always observing the sound. And I've composed since I was a child. So it doesn't feel like a leap. Uh, Certainly, I've had to learn a lot about writing for vocalists. But it really, you know, music is so all-encompassing. It's storytelling uh, with highly trained and, and beautiful voices. And I don't know. It's sort of like strings. I mean, voices and strings and winds and brass. I mean, it's all about singing, I think. Hmm. Would you introduce us to the main characters in our sacred world? Yes, Mother Earth shows up at the beginning, (laughs) and she's a little annoyed. And then her annoyment becomes, she becomes a bit enraged. (laughs) Um, She doesn't understand why humans aren't valuing her. (laughs) So she's one of the main characters. But she also talks about everything she provides for humans. It's quite a list so of wonderful things, as we all know, living on our planet. We also have a character named Big Money, who Mother Earth devises a plan, and Big Money devises a plan, and uh, their plans intertwine, and that's part of the plot of the opera. So Big Money has a cohort named Mine, 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 and Mother Earth has a creature she has created called Little Tree. And she also has climate change who works for her. And climate change goes by CC. That's right. You know, I have the feeling that you were in kind of a rap mode as you were writing the libretto. The flow and the rhyming is so engaging. Does hip-hop factor into this? Well, I listen to everything, so I'm sure it possibly could. But I would say that Cole Porter and Gershwin might have been more of my influences. Well, certainly in the lyrical aspect of it, in the melodic aspect, those influences are evident. Lauren, have you directed 
opera before? I have not. I've directed in the theater for over 20 years and have been a part of a lot of musicals over the years in the theater. But this is my first opera, which I had a huge disclaimer for Amy when she hired me. But I think that is one of the beautiful things that Amy has done is she's managed to gather this group of people who are really committed to the project and really willing to work together and to learn together and to bring this thing to life. So this has been an adventure for me and I'm learning a lot and I also find it really exhilarating. Hmm. Now, dance has been an important part of opera for centuries. There are several dances included in this opera, as you mentioned, Amy. We have the dance of pollution, of fire, life, greed, climate change, white men, and bullying. How did you choose the subjects for each dance? Well, I wrote the libretto, the story. Originally, I was going to have a ballet that I was going to write. I had a dream about a character named Tyrannicus. And I was going to write a ballet about Tyrannicus. And Tyrannicus is a character in this opera. And he is one of the main characters. And he's part of the dance of white men and the dance of bullying. But it became clear to me that he wasn't the main focus. And then the when I wrote the libretto, I real I could see everything on stage. Uh, I often, when I listen to music, I visualize. I have kind of a movie running in my head often with sound. And so I was envisioning the dances. And the dances kind of evolved out of the libretto and the music and the singing. I knew that I wanted dance and movement as part of the music. I think movement and music are totally interlinked. I love mining, extrapolation, exploiting, and intimidation. I love getting things, the bigger the better, the more regulations unfetter. The bigger the better, the more regulations unfetter. I love to Luckily, I found Douglas Scott, who couldn't be here with us today, the artistic director of the Full Radius Dance Company and the choreographer of the eight dances. And by the way, I just want to say I'm so thrilled that Lauren Morris is a part of this project, that I found her through the artistic director of theatrical outfit, Matt Toby, who said she was an amazing human being and a great director. And everything I've seen has told me that. And I'm just so delighted that she's part of this project. Well, Lauren, that's quite a tribute. And I'm curious about your collaboration with the choreographer, Douglas Scott. There's so many moving parts to an opera, so much going on, on stage. How do you direct in a way that the dances come to life and yet 
you must all cohabitate on stage or share it. Would you talk about that? Yeah, I think a lot of what I'm doing is, and I, I always think of directing this way, it's my job to create an environment where everyone in the room can do what they do best in the whole world. And in this case, that's for these beautiful artists to sing, to use their voices to tell stories. And it's for Douglas's company of dancers to make shapes and move and push the limits of what human form can do. So some of that job of creating an environment is simply logistical, making sure that everyone can get where they need to be when they need to be there and can do that without too much trouble. And some of it is, I would say a lot of it actually, is allowing them the freedom to really step into that and to, to be able to create in the most free and fantastical ways that they can. Hmm. Would you talk about the costumes? I was trying to imagine how one outfits a character who's called climate change. I would love to talk about the costumes. Um, they're designed by Michelle Souza, who is an assistant professor of costume design at Kent State University. She's someone that I have worked with numerous times over the past years. I'm from Indiana originally, and I met her working there. And she came up with this ingenious idea to create costumes that are that are quite simple on the body and the fantastical elements of these beings are headdresses. So she's created these light and wearable uh, headdresses that don't impede singing that also express these amazing characters. So Mother Earth's headdress looks like, I would say, a stained glass window of a galaxy. <laughs> oh my. It's sort of a halo that goes over uh, around her head that is made of, I mean, and she's used really innovative materials so that they will be light. So it's like a, it's a plastic material that, that light can shine through. Tyrannicus, who is not a very good human being, his headdress is looks like knives. It's terrifying. But they're they're very, I would say they're abstract artistic interpretations of these characters and made with really beautiful, creative, innovative materials and practices. Hmm. How do you stage the performer's interaction with the audience with breaking of the fourth wall? Part of that is giving them the the specific places where that happens. I think that's important because I think what Amy was saying about the thing that opera can do is there's something physiological, I think, that happens. At least it happens to me. I assume it happens to other people. That when those sound waves hit your bones in the space, it transforms you emotionally in a way that just hearing speaking voices does not. And so I think those moments of interaction with the audience are important to bring them into the story. I have a lot of entrances that happen very close to the audience. I think that's something that that helps them not feel so far away. Uh, the Cole Auditorium also is 
is a beautiful space. It seats a number of people, but it also feels like a pretty intimate proscenium stage. Amy, it's tough to categorize the opera in terms of tragedy or comedy when the topic is climate change. Does this opera suggest there's any hope for our planet? Oh, absolutely. And I think in terms of science, the planet's going to outlive us. It's about whether humans can continue on the planet and all the species that we share the planet with. I think other species, but I think, yes, lots of hope. And uh, in the opera, getting people who have money and power to fall in love with Mother Earth and also to provide Mother Earth with uh, as much love and care as we possibly can in our individual ways. And yes, I think in, within the opera, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of humor. And by the way, I based climate change on Lady Gaga. And <laughs> she's very fashionable and she's a hard worker. She's not terrifying at all. She's a hard worker. She's very powerful, like Lady Gaga. She And she works for Mother Earth. And Mother Earth is all-seeing, all-knowing. And she tells you in her various arias about what she does for us and how she's all we see. And she's the land we stand on. Composer and librettist Amy Leventhal with stage director Lauren Morris. Our Sacred World is on stage in the Cole Auditorium at Georgia State University Perimeter College this Saturday, January 21st. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, filmmaker Sensei Chop highlights the water boys of Atlanta in his documentary Thirst Trap. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you've driven through streets of Atlanta, you may have seen young African-American boys selling water bottles or soft drinks along the medians. They're known as the water boys or bottle boys. The practice is somewhat controversial and has received a lot of media attention in recent years, notably during the height of the pandemic. Atlanta filmmaker and rapper Sensei Chop has created a documentary about the waterboy culture in our city. Thirst Trap is streaming now on Amazon Prime and Tubi. Sensei Chop joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hey, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm eager to hear more about your film. 
Why do these children and adolescents sell water bottles and soft drinks on the streets? Well, um, one thing that I realized is kind of, well, at the time it was hard for a lot of these young guys to get, not necessarily get jobs, but to get the jobs that provided the type of money that would make sense for their living situation. A lot of these, unfortunately, a lot of these kids, they'll be like, somewhere in between the ages of eight and 17 and they are breadwinners for their home. They're in a single family home and they're not trying to turn anything illegal because they might have older relatives or other people in the neighborhoods where they see, okay, if they went to selling drugs or went to robbing people, this is what happened to them. This is what happened to their life. So they don't want to go that route. So to them, that's the best way for them to make the most amount of money legally not realizing that there's other steps you need to take to be able to actually do it legal, but it's not selling drugs. Right. In the film, you speak with Tez and Josh, the entrepreneurs of Diggum Snacks, LLC. How does their water selling business differ from that of the other water boys? Well, I've been seeing Tez and Josh around since like 2016 and one thing i've always noticed about them is they just were super professional with their setup they were super clean i would be riding by i would see them taking time to actually set up their display and everything before they just go out there and sell water and when they're done i actually catch them cleaning up which i don't see any other water boys do this they're not running up to cars they're not being reckless like They'll, they'll wave the, the bottles of water. If you want it, you'll buy it. And if you don't, they'll just keep it moving. There's no pressure. There's no argument. It's no trying to convince them you to make a purchase. And I, I really appreciated that. Yes, it, it seems that Tess and Josh see themselves more as entrepreneurs. Yeah, they do. Actually, they don't like to be called water boys because they say that this is just a hustle that they're doing right right now. They got other things going on, like Ted sells clothes and Josh Epson with that as well. So they don't want to just be labeled as water boys, but this is their, currently their bread and butter right now. And they make, they make a lot of money doing it. Huh. You bring out in the film that this is a better alternative to other hustles, but there's also some danger involved for the children as well as the drivers. Would you tell us more about that? Yeah, so it's a lot of kids that are just extremely reckless, especially after COVID. I think the first couple of months within Atlanta during COVID when we didn't know what was going on and the kids couldn't go to school and they're just being left in the house when they were finally able to go out, they were just just full of energy and just full of life. So a lot of them just couldn't take no for an answer. A lot of them would just run up to cars, snatch what they can out the cars. Definitely not the proper way to do it, but it made a lot of drivers uneasy. Some drivers actually got shot or assaulted by the water boys. Ooh. I remember one time a woman got punched in the face, her purse snatched, and when she got out to chase them for, um, to get her purse back, Another water boy jumped out of a car and drove off and crashed it. Oh. So it's 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 a lot of water boys out there that are, that are causing 
issues and problems with the um, citizens. And how did law enforcement react? Well, originally, law enforcement on Keisha Lance Spaulding, when she was married at the time, she was putting in something in place to have the police officers um, keep the water boys off the street. And that just never went through. So it's kind of like a hit and a miss with law enforcement. Sometimes they'll say something to them. Sometimes they don't because they don't want the backlash. Like I said, this was during COVID. And if you remember during COVID, we had a lot of like racial issues happening. George Floyd, it's, uh, it was just a lot of racial tension at the time. So a lot of police with these water boys being majority black, a lot of police just didn't want to create any issues or have any spotlight drawn on them. Mm, tragedy all around. Right. So you were very young. Well, you were a 12-year-old boy when you started rapping under the name Poke Chop. Yes. How did you come up with that name? Well, I actually didn't come up with that name. I have an older brother. He's like eight years older than me. His, his real name was Doug. And it was a cartoon out when I was like seven called Doug that came on Nickelodeon. And Doug had an older sister, but he had a dog named Porkchop. And right. I just always used to follow my brother around. I, I never really played with kids my age. I used to be with my brother and his friends. And one of his friends just stalked on me Porkchop one day. He said, you just like that little dog that followed Doug around in that cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> That's where that name came from. And when did you decide to change it to Sensei Chop? Um, well, actually, that, that's another name that was given to me, Sensei. But I made that change somewhere like around 2014. Just grew out of Pope Chop. It was a childhood thing. It was, a, you know, a nickname. I kept the Chop, dropped the Poke, added Sensei. <laughs> and what is the story behind Sensei? Well, with my friends, I've always been the one to help people out, give good advice, teach people things, because I, I read a lot. You know, within my community, there's not a lot of people that read a lot or expand their minds. So I tend to know more than a lot of those around me at the time. And I will help them out with all kinds of things, like helping them get their credit together or helping them with legitimation, um, like single fathers, helping them getting their kids legitimized so they can have rights with their kids and not be in a situation where they're saying the kids, mama won't let them see the child. So I will come with this knowledge and resources for people and they just start calling me sensei. Hmm. This is your first major film project. Sensei, when did you become interested in storytelling? I've always been interested in storytelling since since I was probably like six or seven. And actually, when I first got into music, that's what got me into music mainly, just the art of storytelling. And at the time, with the resources I had, that was the best thing that I could use to tell stories in my, my voice. So when I got into film, I originally was, was just doing branding content for a lot of companies and businesses. But... That was just, you know, it's a job. It's just to pay the bills. It's nothing fulfilling in that for me, really. I wanted to tell stories my way. I see a lot of film out there. And a lot of times, we're like in a time period right now where a lot of things that's coming out are like remakes or something might not make, make any sense. It's just out there for shock value. 
And I'm like, it's, it's not any good stories out there. I have to go to YouTube actually just to hear a good story. But the things that's like out there on the mainstream media, a lot of it's like real watered down or cliche for the most part. So instead of me complaining about it, I said, I, I can do this. I can, I can tell a story and I can tell a good story. And from the credits, it looks like you wore many hats creating this film. It, it seems like you handled just about every aspect of production. Tell us about directing photography and narration and editing. You took on many roles here. I took on so many roles in my next film i'm not taking that many roles <laughs> i i didn't know it was my first film i i had no idea what all it would take to actually make the film i just said you know what i'm just i'm gonna try something and i'm gonna learn as i go so it was an extreme learning process i started i actually started the film in 2020 the towards the end of 2020 and literally the first day of shooting I got my car stole. Oh. My mom went missing for a whole week. Me and my sister had no idea where my mom was. Oh my God. And I'm dealing with all this in the midst of me trying to put a documentary together. And my brother got locked up. It was just a lot of things that were happening in that time period on top of me trying to learn how to be a filmmaker because in my mind, I'm thinking I have a camera, I can get it done. And I'm, I really wasn't thinking about the whole legal aspect of it as well, or the fact that when you're making something like a documentary, when you're trying to convey certain emotions to the audience, you have to experience those emotions yourself in editing so it can feel real and authentic. And just the mental toll that takes on you and not realizing like, wow, this is a lot. Like for example, Mika Plesh, Jelani's mom, to listen to her part over and over and go through all the footage and you know it's a heartbreaking story and I have to relive that on a constant basis over and over again while I'm editing I'm like nah I have to get somebody else to help me with stuff like this and then when it got to the music part I'm actually rapping on the main song but the actual score of the documentary I had to get a whole producer team to make everything from scratch because the music that I was using, the company told me they wanted like $10,000 for it. And I'm like, I didn't even spend that much to make the film. I don't, don't want to spend $10,000 just on the music. So I had to strip off all the music and get everything made from scratch. So yeah, it was a lot. It sounds like it. Wow. Hey. Let play numbers, I got a bad on it. I got a bad vibe too, she can add on it. Got a way, make a lame, hit it sad on it. Got forms, got whips, they got cats on them. I shoot for a living, I'm the Mandalorian. A drug dealer's dream, clean, dope, boy, persona. But I'm the sensei, see, I pay the roll runners. Catching out my cash out, bumping the old hunters. The new one's on the way, I lost another old friend just the other day. Rest in peace, thought we gon' celebrate. No, we gon' find your killers, hunt them down and get them straight. About to make me miss my dinner date. Bloodstains all, I'm a bust down. I ain't have a car, I used to chase the bus down. Now that Rolly say, you ain't gotta rush now. Cool it. So Sensei, why was it important to you that this aspect of Atlanta culture be the subject of your first major film? It was important to me because during that time, there were a lot of people 
posting memes and stories and even news clips about the water boy culture in Atlanta. And for the most part, it was just all just super negative. It was just showing the wild, reckless behavior. It was showing basically the ignorance of it. And with me being around it for as long as I've been around it, I'm like, no, it's deeper than that. It's more to it than that. There are actual professionals who are doing this. And on top of that, there are water boys that lost their lives by other water boys in the midst of it is literally like a drug story minus the drugs. And I wanted the world to see that because most of the world don't even know anything about the waterboard culture, let alone how deep it really is. And a lot of Atlanta um, residents don't know about it as well. I get a lot of feedback for the film from people who live within the city. And most of them say the same thing. Like, we didn't know it was that deep. We just thought it was just a whole bunch of wild kids running up the cars, trying to charge five, ten dollars for a bottle of water. We didn't know it got that extreme because a lot of people only show just the ignorance and the negative part of it. I'm like, yeah, it, it's a, a real business for a lot of these people. And it's some kids who actually lost their lives out there trying to make a living for their family. So I want to tell that story, show the world, because I, I, I feel like it was unique. I, I feel like other people would feel the same way. Sensei Chop, Atlanta filmmaker and rapper, his new documentary, Thirst Trap, is available to stream on Amazon Prime, Tubi, and other streaming platforms. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. My name is Lauren Merceron and I create abstract portraits. I like mixed media, but I am mostly working with acrylics. I also love painting on paper because you get so much variation with the colors. I got started in art in elementary school. I feel like artists kind of discover that zen, beautiful gift that art making brings. Mostly at an early age, I struggled in school a lot. Wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia until I was an adult, but I discovered that art was my safe place and that is exactly why I am an art teacher in the schools. I want to always be able to provide the experience that was gifted to me to students. And I'm very fortunate that Fulton County Schools supports the arts in an awesome way. Atlanta is a great city. I moved here in 2015. Um, my husband is training at Emory University right now. So I moved with my husband, but since then I have really enjoyed getting to know all the neighborhoods. There's so much to explore and so many talented artists here. Of course, I love the Woodruff Art Center. There's such a wealth of opportunity to be explored here. I've definitely been influenced by Atlanta. 
being an art teacher in Fulton County Schools, working at Conley Hills Elementary, there's such a great support system of teaching artists in this city, and I feel very fortunate to be a working artist here. I feel like the city is full of art. Everywhere you look, you can see graffiti, murals, all kinds of art. Just last Sunday, I was uh, with my kids at Piedmont Park and randomly found an acapella group singing in the park. I guess that was the first day of the year and it was so exciting. Art just brings so much vibrance to everyone's life. Could not imagine what life would be without music and visual arts. You can find my work at laurenmerceron.com or on Instagram at laurenmercerontart. Abstract portrait artist Lauren Merceron. More information about Merceron's work, as well as our series Speaking of Art, is on our website, wabe.org slash speaking of. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.